So we're continuing our series in the Gospel of John, so please turn there. And we're in chapter 19. And today we look at the story of the crucifixion, which we can think of as the very center of the Bible, in a sense. That the whole of the Bible points to it, looks to it, talks about it. So please stand if you're able, and we'll read John 19, beginning with verse 17. This is God's holy word. Please give ear to it. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And thus ends the reading of God's word. And may the Lord add his blessing to his word. Let's go to him in prayer now. Our Father, as the rain continues to fall, we are reminded of the waters of the flood of Noah, and we're reminded of the waters of baptism, and we're reminded of how they point to the future and final judgment. Lord, we know that the waters of baptism, they represent both your terrible judgment and your great and wonderful salvation. Lord, we pray now that as we reflect upon this 
most momentous of events, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would also come pouring down upon us. Lord, that you would work in our hearts, that you might grant us faith, that we might believe, that we might be strengthened in our faith, that you might sanctify us and bless this church, Lord, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Have a seat. So, has a situation ever turned out to be completely different than you expected it to be? You know, have you ever seen something that you thought the person maybe was completely out of control? It looked like something was terrible was going to happen, but then it was all part of the plan, and it turned out good. Now, I think of uh, back in 1956, there was this famous thing called um, the Game of the Century. Have you heard of it? It was uh, actually a chess match between this... 42-year-old chess champion, international chess champion, Donald Byrd. Some of you are chess geeks, so you've probably heard of it. Um, and 13-year-old Bobby Fischer. Bobby Fischer is it's a common name you've probably heard of. But uh, as you can imagine, this great chess champion, very experienced in his 40s, playing against this kid, right? So nobody really thought this kid was going to win. And in fact, as the match went on, it looked very bad for Bobby Fischer. It seemed like he was losing quite badly because uh, his queen was captured. And if you know something about chess, you know that that's uh, very serious. When your queen is captured, then most of the time you you lose. Uh, They get a checkmate on you. But in this case... Bobby Fisher, he actually was, had a plan, and he sacrificed his queen on purpose in order that this older guy, Donald Byrne, would uh, fall into his trap and take his queen, and then he would be able to work on his weak. He'd open his weakness, kind of, and then he'd attack. And so ultimately, Bobby Fisher won the match. Um, it was a great surprise to people who are watching, but at the same time, this was this is Bobby Fischer's plan. Uh, it was according to his intent and his purpose. Right? Now, in today's text, we read of perhaps the greatest unexpected victory in, in history, the cross of Christ. And it's interesting because as we read through the Gospels, um, all four Gospels, I think, but also here in John, you might think that the authors would kind of slow down and try to work the emotions of the, of the readers and maybe uh, really get into details about the pain and suffering of the Lord Jesus because that's how it's usually done in the movies. Um, there was this whole tradition called the Passion Plays, and it was common in the medieval Roman Catholic Church. And then if you've ever seen the 
The Passion of a Christ with Mel Gibson. I don't recommend you see it, but if you've ever seen it, uh, that's what it is. There's much focus on Christ's suffering, his physical pain and suffering. And he's made to look like a victim. That, that part is emphasized. But as we read here in the Gospel of John and the other Gospels, we get a, I think it's, the crucifixion is portrayed in a, in a very different light. And so even though it appeared, it appeared that Christ was, this was a great failure, that he had ministered for three years and had, had these 12 disciples, and then they had all deserted him. And look who's left at the cross. The men had run away, except for John. But who's there but the women? Uh, Jesus' mother, and then two other Marys. So three Marys at the cross. And if you were to put yourselves in their shoes, you can imagine how sad they would have been, especially uh, Mary, the mother of Christ, to see her son suffering like that. And so you can imagine how they, from their point of view, how they would have, you know, how they would not have necessarily um, expected what God was going to do, how God was going to use this crucifixion of Christ, and what exactly was going on here, and how it was actually a great victory for God. And so this is, this is the main thing we want to see in today's text. Though it appeared to be a defeat, the cross reveals God's plan a victory, indeed what he had planned all along. So see this in three points. First of all, in verse 17 and following, we see the cross reveals God's plan to proclaim Christ's kingship. And secondly, verse 23 and 24, we see God's plan uh, prophesied in the Old Testament. And finally, verses 25 and 26 and 27, we see God's plan to create a new family through the cross. So let's look again at verse 17. So the cross reveals God's plan to proclaim Christ's kingship. It says, So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Now it's important to remember that Christ was not crucified in private. It was public, open, 
for people to see. There are many witnesses. And it tells us here that it was in this place called Golgotha, which is the place of the skull. That's what Golgotha means. Why was it called the place of the skull? Apparently, this area, the geography of the area, had the appearance of a skull. And so it seems to have become a place where the, where the public executions had, uh, been, had occurred there. So it was, this was something that was open not only for the Jews to see, but for the whole world to see. And this was the custom uh, that the Romans had when they crucified someone, that they wanted everyone to be able to see it. This was to be a deterrent, right? Um, to keep people from messing with Rome, from breaking their laws. If you saw someone being crucified and how terrible of a process it was and how much suffering they went through, it was supposed to keep people uh, obedient to the emperor, obedient to the laws of Rome. And I suppose it, it was effective in that regard. So, but we see here that the crime, another part of the way they do it is they would put the nature of the crime. Why is this person being executed? Why are they being crucified? It was placed um, clearly for everyone to see. And that was to be an even greater deterrent, right? Why was this person crucified? So Pilate ch carefully chose these words, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now we notice here that the Jewish leadership, they did not like that, did they? They had a problem with that. What was their problem with it? Well, it was kind of humiliating to them for Jesus to be um, titled as the king of the Jews. And so they, they go to Pilate and they say, you should change this. You should change it and say, well, he claimed to be. He said he was the king of the Jews. But not re he wasn't really. That's what the Jewish leadership uh, were upset about. Now, Pilate knew what he was doing. Right? And if you remember back in the story, as we've seen in the previous sermons, uh, Pilate, he likely was a bit aggravated with the Jewish leadership because why? They had forced him to do something that he didn't really want to. Um, it had become apparent from the trial that Jesus was, in fact, innocent, that there was no good cause for his crucifixion. And Pilate had seen that clearly. And you remember that he washed his hands of it, right? And so he was a bit aggravated with the Jewish leadership that they had kind of forced him to do this against his, against his will. And so this is, how, this is his revenge. He says, well, okay, if you guys are going to make me do this, I'm going to humiliate you a bit. And I'm going to say, we're not going to say this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. We're going to say he was the king of the Jews. So it's interesting that on one level, you have Pilate's intentions and his choice of the words. But on another level, we see God's uh, sovereignty over the whole event. Right? 
that this was written exactly as God intended. We know that Jesus truly is king. And it wasn't merely that he claimed to be. He truly was the king of the Jews, and he is the king of the universe. So, so this message was the truth, even though it was intended as mockery. And we read further that it was written not just in one language, but three languages. And this would have been so that anybody could have read it. It was written in Aramaic, in Greek, and in Latin. So obviously the Jews generally could have read the Aramaic, the Romans could have read the Latin, and anybody else would have been probably, probably been able to read the Greek because that was the common language around. So it was clear for everyone to see. And in this, we see a picture of how the gospel goes out to the world, to every tribe and tongue and nation. And the kingship of Christ is proclaimed. Not simply proclaimed, but proclaimed in the cross. You see, it is the cross in which is most clearly proclaims the kingship of, of Jesus. Right? It's in the cross that we see what kind of king he is. He's the kind of king who gives himself for his people. The cross is the greatest display of love. Jesus Christ is a king who loves his people, died for his people. And so the cross proclaims the gospel, proclaims his kingship most clearly. You see, it is the cross is the place where Jesus had dominion over sin. He's where he defeated his enemies of sin and death and the devil set the cross as his blood atoned as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. It is there in which he took his throne as king. And that's why the Lord ordained that this plaque would be at the top of the cross. We can think about... Um, how the Jewish leadership thought by crucifying Jesus that this would put an end to Christ, that this would put an end to his message, that this would stop his ministry that was bothering them. But the very opposite happens. It spread it. Now I think about um, when I first started to cook when I was a teenager, and I had this little grease fire going. I thought, well, I need to put out this grease fire, so what I do, have you ever done this? Threw some water on it, right? Well, you know what happens when you throw water on a grease fire as it explodes, goes up, the flames go high, right? And so it was in this case that they thought that they were putting it into Christ, but in reality, it's the very thing uh, which they thought was killing his message and stopping him is the thing which spread and by which he accomplished our salvation. So it's the wisdom of God. This is the kind of thing that men could never come up with. 
So the cross teaches us that the gospel is proclaimed, the kingship of Christ is proclaimed, not in you know, prosperity, but in suffering. So as believers, we're united to Christ in his suffering and death and in his resurrection. And what does that mean? That means we should not hide. We have a natural tendency to want to hide our suffering and keep it from others and not want other people to see our weaknesses, our suffering. But you see, your suffering... Just like Christ's suffering proclaimed the gospel on the cross, so as we suffer for God's glory, we can proclaim powerfully the gospel to unbelievers, to the world. It is, when you suffer, see it as an opportunity to proclaim Christ's kingship and God's sovereignty over your life. And that he is accomplishing victory even in the midst of your suffering. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 tells us, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed him on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This brings us to our second point in verse 23 and following that the cross reveals God's plan um, that he had throughout the Old Testament, that he prophesied in the Old Testament. So let's look at verse 23 again. It says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill The scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. So when we think of the cross, it's of the utmost importance to remember that this this was not a plan B. There have been some misguided people in the history of the church who thought the cross was a plan B because the Jews had rejected Christ. But no, this was plan A. This was the only plan that God had for our salvation. You see, the cross is the fulfillment of all the covenant promises that were made throughout history to God's people as we read through the Old Testament. And I hope you don't skip over the Old Testament and only read the New Testament because the Old Testament powerfully points to Jesus and not just him generally, but to the cross, to his death, and to his resurrection. So we gain greater assurance as we study the Word of God 
And we see those connections. We see how the cross fulfilled many particular prophecies in the Old Testament. Now in this case, it's, uh, John quotes from Psalm 22, which we sang, and we're going to sing the second half of it in response uh, in a minute. But here it's verse 18 in which he quotes. And this is a very specific prophecy that's fulfilled by these four Roman soldiers who divided Christ's garments among themselves. Now, you have to think about it. It's kind of odd, isn't it? Why did they want Jesus' clothes? You ever wonder that? Because, um, you know, I don't... Sometimes you see people's clothing that you might covet, <laughs> but generally you don't care that much, right? So it could have been that these clothing, uh, this clothing, they thought it would have been worth some money because Jesus had so many followers. It could have also been that they thought it had some sort of magical power because the news had gotten around that by merely touching um, the robe of Jesus, the people had been healed. So it might have been superstition. And also, it could have been the case that it says this is um, part of his clothing was a seamless tunic. So that could have been actually um, like a quite expensive coat of some sort that maybe been given to him as a present from one of his disciples. We think of the woman who bought the expensive perfume and poured it on his feet, right? So that might have been the case. But at any rate, unbeknownst to them, they're fulfilling God's word from a thousand years before. Amazing. And they even cast lots. Now you can think how disrespectful and how terrible of a thing to do before the Lord of glory on the cross as he's writhing in pain to play this game of sport to throw the dice, so to speak, to decide who gets his coat. But even in their sin, in their wickedness, fulfilling God's word, God's plan. And we're to see here that Jesus was not a helpless victim, but instead he was a sovereign king. He was in full control of the situation. And he was accomplishing his plan and his purposes perfectly on the cross. Now, Charles Simeon, the old minister uh, from the 1800s, in his sermon on this passage, he says something very interesting. We think about the nature of prophecy that we can see here. He says, it is of the very nature of prophecy to be obscure. Yea, it is altogether essential to the designs of prophecy. For suppose a prophecy to be perfectly clear, the friends of religion would be ready to exert themselves to fulfill it, as the enemies of religion would be to counteract it. Thus, if it were not accomplished... The religion which it was to support could be called an imposter, and if accomplished, its accomplishment 
would be considered as the effect only of human prudence. See, you understand what he's saying there. I think this is an important point. Um, Because as we read the Old Testament, we see the nature of the prophecies of Christ. Um, He uses the word obscure, but we could also say there, uh, in some sense, many of them are a bit indirect. And he's saying there's a very good reason for that in God's wisdom, in God's plan. Because if it's too direct, then it's very You see, people would be out there trying to accomplish it in their own power or disprove it uh, like that. And then if it became accomplished, he says it could be the effect. It would be seen as just the effect of human wisdom, right? So the Bible actually, we see God's wisdom in the nature of the prophecy and the nature in which it is fulfilled. Now in this case, in Psalm 22, as we have read uh, Psalm 22, you see along there, now, uh, it's a Psalm of David, right? So we think about David. As you read through there, now David, he did receive great persecution. You think of when King Saul was trying to kill him, and he had to run away. And I believe it's First Samuel chapter 30, even uh, his wives are captured. Right, so his, his possessions are taken. So if this uh, prophecy, the way it, if it refers to David, uh, there's no literal fulfillment of in David's life. In fact, we could see that we could go through Psalm 22 and we can say, um, if there's fulfillment in David, it's very figurative, not, not very literal, right? But when it's so interesting that 1,000 years Roughly later, in Christ, that these fulfillments are much more almost literal in this sense, right? That it was an actual garment that was divided, right? So we see the wisdom of God. And when we look back, we can see clearly uh, the prophecy and understand how it was meant to be fulfilled in a way that... Um, King David, as he wrote the psalm, couldn't have understood completely. So it's amazing. We can think of the cross as like the climax um, in a mystery novel. You know, when you read the book, the whole book is pointing towards the climax. It foreshadows it. And without that climax, the story doesn't make sense. And it's the same thing with our Bible. The cross is the most momentous thing that happens. It's the center of the Bible. And if you take the cross out of the Bible, you find that the Bible does not make sense anymore, that it is a dark book and depressing. But when we read the Bible in light of the cross, things fall into place and they make sense. And so we need to read the Bible the correct way, like the apostles did. Sometimes you'll see people say that we can't interpret the Bible like the apostles did. We can't read the Old Testament like the apostles did because they had a special um, inspiration, which is true. Um, but the reality is that 
as we read the way that the apostles interpret the Old Testament, we should follow their example and read it like them and be looking for Christ and be looking for the cross, be looking for the fulfillment of God's prophecy and God's word in the cross. First uh, Peter Chapter 1 says, The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. Isn't that amazing that as those as King David and as the prophets of the Old Testament, uh, their ministries, their prophecies, the writings we have in the Old Testament, is saying here that uh, they were serving us. They were serving the New Testament, New Covenant Church, who can understand now fully what they mean. So let us uh, not neglect the Old Testament prophecies. They build our faith. So this takes us to our third point. The cross reveals God's plan for a new family. Let's look at verse 25 again. It says, by standing by the, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now it's amazing that while our Lord was suffering and dying on the cross, what came to his mind? What was he thinking about? He wasn't thinking about himself his own suffering, his own pain. You know, if you've ever been in a lot of pain, you know it's hard to think about others. But the Lord Jesus was thinking at this time, he was thinking of his mother. And he's keeping the fifth commandment. Remember the fifth commandment, to honor thy mother and thy father. He kept it perfectly. Now Mary, we can surmise that that Joseph had passed away, that he was probably a bit older than her, and he passed away. So um, Mary would need someone to take care of her. And here is where the Apostle John um, has an intimate connection with the story, because it refers to the disciple whom Jesus loved. We've talked about that before and how that's almost certainly referring to John, the author of, human author of the gospel. And so he entrusts to John the care of his mother. And we can look and compare it to the other gospels and you notice that this story, uh, this particular pericope, we called it, uh, this part of the story is only found in the gospel of John, I believe. So you might be tempted to say, well, that's because uh, John has his personal connection here, right? But I think there's actually, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
there's a, a greater reason that this is included in the story. I think that the Holy Spirit wishes to point to us the reality of this new family. There's a new family that the cross produces in God's plan. We can think about how the cross, in one sense, it separates. It separates people from the world. And after the cross, we know that the Lord Jesus was resurrected three days later. And yet, after the cross, he's separated and he, has to, he, goes to, he sends to heaven, right? can no longer take care of his mother. And we can think about how when you believe in Christ, that oftentimes our, oftentimes our old relationships uh, get severed, that we can't um, necessarily hang out with the same people we used to. And even in our family relationships, if your family members are not Christian, there can become a divide um, an unavoidable divide that occurs if they're not believers, and you are. And so, here we're pointed to the fact that the cross produces a new family, new mothers and new sons. And we're called to love fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as family with deep, deep love. And this is to bring us comfort for the loss of relationships that we may experience. Now, you know in Korea they have this, um, actually I think it's a very messed up concept called the pure blood theory. Have you guys heard of that? And it's basically, it's this idea that um, Koreans are all of pure blood and so you should not mix the blood, right? And so what they believe is um, that the blood is what binds people together, right? It is the blood that brings a relational bond. And so um, some people will say, based on that, they say you should not marry a foreigner if you're Korean. And you notice the adoption, sadly, is um, not very common in Korea. Um, and I think that's part of the reason, historically, for that. But we see here that this relationship, this bond between Mary and John, where does it happen? It happens at the foot of the cross. And what produces it? It is actually blood. It's pure blood. It's the pure blood of Christ. That is what produces its new family. And this blood is the blood that atones for our sins. It's the blood that atoned for the sin of Mary. Because, you know, Mary was not perfect, even though the Roman Catholic Church teaches that. And she was a sinner. Uh, she needed to have Christ die for her. She needed his blood atone for her sins. John was a sinner. He needed the blood of Christ. And brothers and sisters, we are sinners. and We need the blood of Christ to cover our sins. And it is that blood that binds us together. 
that creates this new family of the church. You know, our church is named Covenant Church, and one of the most common ways of describing a covenant, we say it's a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. So the blood of Christ, according to God's plan, it creates a new family in him. And it's a family with a much stronger tie than just physical and uh, traditional family ties. Because we are stuck together for eternity <laughs> in Christ, reunited in Christ. And I want you to remember that if you have a quarrel with your brother or sister, you best figure it out, repent, and uh, reconcile sooner rather than later because you're stuck. <laughs> if you're a believer, you're stuck with them forever. Um, you cannot break up the relationship in this new family of true believers in Christ. You're united as one in Christ and in his blood. And I know many of us are, are separated from our biological families, aren't we? Uh, we're far away. I hope that as we're um, feeling lonely, that we would reach out to one another and that this would be an opportunity for us that Christ, you know, Christ, he called John to take care of Mary, but he's also calling each one of us to take care of one another and to, you see how he, she goes to live with him. It wasn't just like he called her on the phone, right? He welcomes her into his house. She goes to live with them, and according to church um, tradition, she lived with them for like another 20 or 30 years. Um, so that's, that's true love. Remember what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 12. He said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So church, as we've seen the cross, it was not an accident. In fact, it uncovers God's eternal plan, his eternal plan of salvation for his people in Christ. So let us remember to look at the cross. If we want to understand God's hidden purpose for this world and for your life, look to the cross. Continually look back to the cross. So in closing, hear these words from Ephesians 3. It says, This grace was given to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I ask you not to lose heart over suffering, which is your glory. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, as we have thought about, once again, your cross, Lord Jesus, we confess that so often we take it for granted. 
that we don't fully realize what happened. What happened 2,000 years ago on the cross? Lord, we, we need your Holy Spirit to fully understand. Lord, we pray that we would be a people whose lives would be centered in your cross. Lord, we pray for this congregation that as we suffer, Lord, that we would remember your great plan and that your victory comes through suffering. We pray, Lord, that we would diligently seek uh, you in the Old Testament, that we would continually read your word and you'd strengthen us as we see more and more of how your word is fulfilled in Christ at the cross. And we pray, Lord, that you would build this church into of a reflection, Lord, of your love, that, Lord, we'd remember that we are bound together by your blood in a way that is much stronger, it's much stronger connection than any other relationships in this world. So, Lord, we thank you. We pray all this in Christ's name.